In defining progress, I think it's very important to make a distinction between good progress and bad progress. I mean, things progress in the sense that they change. Both in nature and in human society, there appears to be a clear trend towards increasing complexity as change proceeds. We tend to delude ourselves that these changes always result in improvements from the human point of view. We're now reaching a point at which technological progress and the increase in our economies and our numbers threaten the very existence of humanity. We can't be... What is progress? Uh, I think th that's too hard a question. Um. easy and will not come quick. But today, we had an opportunity to move forward. Hmm. It's 
seems like we're stuck in this trap for the last 200 years of, since the Industrial Revolution where we think progress is more of the same. Like, we, we should make our machines better and get more machines. But we've been doing that for 200 years, so doing more of that is not progress. We're like stuck in this, like a record. <laughs> start out to seem like improvements or progress. These things are very seductive. It seems like there's no downside to these. But when they reach a certain scale, they turn out to be dead ends or traps. I came up with the term progress trap to define human behaviors that sort of seem to be good things, seem to be to provide benefits in the short term, but which ultimately lead to disaster because they're unsustainable. And one example would be going right back into the old Stone Age, the time of when our ancestors were hunting mammoths. They reached a point where their weaponry and their hunting techniques got so good that they destroyed hunting as a way of life throughout most of the world. The people who discovered how to kill two mammoths instead of one had made real progress. But the people who discovered that they could eat really well by driving a whole herd over a cliff and kill 200 at once had fallen into a progress trap. They'd made too much progress. Our physical bodies and our physical brains, as far as we can tell, have changed very little in the past 50,000 years. We've only been living in civilization for the last 5,000 years at the most, which is less than 0.2% of our evolutionary history. So the other 99.8, we were hunters and gatherers, and that is the kind of way of life that made us We are essentially the same people as those Stone Age hunters. What makes our way of life different from theirs is culture has taken off at a, an exponential rate and has really become completely detached from the pace of natural evolution. So we are running 21st century software, our knowledge, uh, on hardware that hasn't been upgraded for 50,000 years. Uh, and this is, lies at the core of many of our problems. All of this is because our human nature is back in the hunting-gathering era of the Old Stone Age, whereas our, our knowledge and our technology, in other words, our ability to do both good and harm to ourselves and to the world in general, uh, has grown out of all proportion. One thing to remember, of course, about the human mind is that it's not that fundamentally different from, say, the brain of a chimpanzee. Most of the human brain, the basic structure of the brain, is much older 
than, than human species. Some of it goes back to bacteria, some of it goes back to worms, some of it originated in the first mammal, some of it in the first primates, some of it in the first human beings. Very little of it, however, changed in the last 50,000 years. And so most of what we do, we do with hardware components that are much older than any of the problems that we face. When I first began to study chimps, I thought that the task was to just map out more and more similarities, to find areas of cognition that hadn't been studied yet and simply show that chimps were just like us. child to stand up a block upright. And you can teach a chimp to do the same thing. Oh, I'll set up the block here, set up a block here. I can see everything. It's very, very clear. And I get a, a piece of fruit for doing it. But what happens when you introduce a small subtlety into this situation where you trick them and just make the block uh, off-center just enough that it keeps falling over? Well, the chimp will come in, set up the good block, set up the, the, the block that we've tricked them with, but then it falls over. Well, the chimp can see that it's not the way it's supposed to be, so they try again, and they try again, and they move it to one place, and they move it to another place, and they keep trying to get it to stand up because they know what is supposed to happen, but they have no understanding or no inclination to ask why what unobservable part of the situation is causing that block to keep falling over? The young child will enter, set up the good block, try to set up the, 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 the block that we've tricked them with, but when it falls over, well, first they'll try again, and maybe try again, but very quickly, they'll turn it over, feel the bottom of it, shake it, try to discern what unobservable property of that block is causing it to fall over. That's the, the fundamental core difference, I believe, between humans and chimps, that humans ask why. We're constantly probing for unobservable ex, uh, uh, phenomenon to explain the observable. It's what's driven us to discover gravity. It's what's driven us to probe into the mysteries of quasars. And it's the same thing that drives us to probe into the mysteries of each other in our everyday lives. Why does she keep doing that? Why does he keep behaving like that? He must think this, he must believe this. I, I don't understand why, 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 why? So the upside of the human capacity to ask why, to continually probe behind appearances and to try to find out how the world really works is we develop fabulous new medicines. We develop fabulous new therapeutic techniques to take care of people. Uh, we invent the whole cascade of modern technology.
the downside is that we invent the whole cascade of modern technology. Arguably, we are the most intellectual creature that's ever walked on planet Earth. So how come then that this so intellectual being is destroying its only home because we only have the one home? Maybe one day people will be on Mars, but for the moment we've got planet Earth. And we are destroying, we are polluting, we are damaging the future of our own species, which is very counterproductive from an evolutionary perspective. This capacity that seems so wonderful to us, the ability to ask why, the very ability that undergirds modern science as a double-edged sword. If humans go extinct uh, on this planet, I think what's going to be our epitaph on our gravestone is why. I'm getting a light drive in this machine. Think I overdid that one. Yeah, I went clean out of sight. <laughs> oh, you think you're so clever. <laughs> okay. We have the ability to think into the future, but most of our mechanisms, most of our brain mechanisms, evolved before we had any ability to think forward to the future. And when it made some sense for decisions to be short-term, and so a lot of our brain mechanisms um, what I call our ancestral mechanisms or our reflexive mechanisms are tuned to making snap decisions right away, like fight or flight. You see the lion, either you're going to fight or you're going to run. No time to think about you know, the long-term consequences. And that's good when we're stressed about something immediate that we can deal with, for example. But those very systems that work by reflex are not so good at cooperating with these more modern systems, the deliberative systems that allow us to make long-term decisions and say, well, is this good for me? Is it good for my society, for my planet? Between the fall of the Roman Empire and Columbus sailing, it took 13 centuries to add 200 million people to the world's population. Now it takes only three years. A simple thing like pasteurization, the warming of, of milk so that the bacteria are killed, and the control of um, smallpox, things like that have led to a great boom in human numbers. So overpopulation, which nobody really wants to talk about because it cuts at things like religious beliefs and the, the freedom of the individual and the autonomy of the family and so forth, is something that we're going to have to deal with. We probably have to work towards a much smaller worldwide population than six or seven billion. We probably need to go down to a half that or possibly even a third of that if everybody is going to live comfortably and decently. The other side of this problem, and perhaps the more dangerous side, is the footprint 
of the individuals at the top of the social pyramid who are consuming the most. Somebody in the United States or Europe is consuming about 50 times more resources than a poor person in a place like Bangladesh. If China were to reach the level of consumption of, say, the United States or Europe, it's very unlikely that the world could support the addition of a billion consumers at that level. Say in China, maybe 200, 300 million people are quote unquote affluent. You know, they could afford, relatively speaking, you know, what we can in the West. In India, another whatever, 200 million. You know, so you add up these these affluent um, segments of population in these developing countries or marginalized countries, but still you come up with no more than one and a half, maybe two billion people. So there is still five billion people waiting to tap into these bonanzas of, you know, plentiful food, cars, uh, decent housing, right, uh, higher education for their children. So the potential demand for resources is immense.要说个人驾驶经验不知道多少公里，但是自驾车以领队的这个呃这个这个工作带领自驾车达到了五十万公里以上。这个谁的司机啊？这个车过去吧。再高一点，停，停，好，走，好，停。咱们待会儿先出发，等前面车过了，咱们走。那么《西游记》呢，作为中国的古代传说当中，呃，家喻户晓的一个故事，一个传说，一个神话故事吧。然后师徒四人去西天取经。这么一个历史的神话传说，那么我就是这个车队当中的这个这个唐僧，是我就是这个师傅，我带领大家，我带领这些徒弟们一起去西天取得真经，取得生活的真谛，去享受生命这个真经。
。住在河对岸有一个小村庄，他们村子里头就是这样，基本上家家户户没有冰箱。要买肉的话呢，需要去三十公里以外的县城去买，一周不去一次，一周可能才去一次。所以说我个人的生活条件，在最近的这个十几、二十几年之内发生了翻天覆地的变化。西红柿只有只有那个夏天、秋天有，冬天是吃不到的。那么现在不一样，任何时候，呃，一年四季我随时可以吃到西红柿，随时可以吃到西瓜。随时可以吃到肉，随时可以吃到海鲜，这些事情小时候不敢想。到家了，十多天啊！中国的经济发展，我想三十年，应该，呃，全世界都评价基本上是一致的。不管是喜欢中国还是不喜欢中国的人，那么当时这三十年，我们也有很多问题，比如是环境问题。北京的环境在奥运会以前是非常糟糕的，那么现在已经有很大的改进。这个不可以讲，这个这个现在我们一直在注意这件事情，全程我一直在避免这种事情出现，我们一直在注意控制这件事情。你这个，你这个，你这个，你不是去的问题。现在现在不是对你的采访，不是全世界都知道，不需要你不能用你的嘴去说出来。别说了，什么叫别说了？你说这个是很有问题的，你知道吗？我们一直控制这件事，因为不成，不成问题。那么那么我这这么多年的这个工作是我才积累到现在这种地步，那你这么去做对我有很大的伤害，你你明白吗？你这边去对我有很大的伤害，你不明白，你不明白。那么中国的经济在今后还是Thousands of years, you know, China has the longest continuous civilization in the world, and it is only uh, during the recent period of time when the European countries started to industrialize that China started to lag behind, and therefore, you know, uh, between the first Opium War in around 1840 all the way to about 1978. China went through a roller coaster of great humiliations, wars of aggression by foreign nations, uh, Japanese aggression uh, against China, civil war, collapse of the Qing Dynasty, Great Cultural Revolution, chaos in China. That when Deng Xiaoping re-emerged in 1978, 
he basically pointed out the only correct path. We need to go onto a path of growth, and China need to modernize and industrialize. And I think that's, you know, the beginning of China's correct development onto a right path. Some people have written about um, natural capital, the capital that nature provides, which is the clean air, the clean water, the, the uncut forests, the, the rich farmland, um, and the minerals, the oil, the, the metals, all of these things are the capital that nature has provided. And until about 1980, human civilization was able to live on what we might term the interest of that capital, the surplus that nature is able to produce. Uh, the food that farmland can grow without actually degrading the farmland, or the number of fish you can pull out of the sea without causing the fish stocks to, stocks to, to crash. But since 1980, we've been using more than the interest. And so we are, in effect, like somebody who thinks he's rich because he's spending the money that has been left in his inheritance, uh, not spending the interest, but eating into the capital. The last time I visited the New York Stock Exchange was in 1980, and the mood sure was different then. Government, with its high taxes, excessive spending, and overregulation, had thrown a wrench in the works of our free markets. With tax reform and budget control, our economy will be free to expand to its full potential driving the bears back into permanent hibernation. That's our economic program for the next four years. We're going to turn the bull loose. The world is, is this big. It's not this big, and it can't be this big. It's just this big. It's a finite sum. Instead of thinking that nature is this huge bank that we can just, this endless credit card that we can just keep drawing on, we have to think about the finite nature of that planet and how to keep it alive so that we too may remain alive. Unless we conserve the planet, there isn't going to be any the economy. The Ice Age hunter is still us, it's still in us. Uh, those ancient hunters who thought that there would always be another herd of mammoth over the next hill shared the optimism of the stock trader that there's always going to be another big killing on the stock market in the next week or two. Get your bets down, ladies and gentlemen.
If you're watching the Earth, say, over the last five or 6,000 years, and you're speeding up your film, uh, what you see is civilizations breaking out like forest fires in one pristine environment after another. And after a civilization has arisen and sort of burned out uh, the natural resources in that area, then it dies down and another fire breaks out somewhere else. And now, of course, we have one huge civilization all around the world, which we have to confront the possibility that the entire experiment of civilization is in itself a progress trap. The Dow plunged more than 500 points yesterday. It was the biggest Dow decline ever. La crise financière américaine. And our economy seemingly on the brink of collapse. Banks have failed and shares have plummeted. The effects are working their way down to all of us. When will the economy turn around? Yes. I'm not an economist, but I do believe that we're growing. And uh, I can remember, you know, this press conference here, people yelling recession this, recession that, as if you're economists. And uh, I'm an optimist. You know, I, I believe there's a lot of positive things for our economy. Faith in progress has become a kind of religious faith, uh, a, a sort of fundamentalism, rather like the market fundamentalism that has just recently crashed and burned. Um, the idea that uh, you can let markets rip is a delusion, just as the idea that you can let technology rip and it will solve the problems created by itself in a slightly earlier phase. You know, that, that, that has become... Um, a belief very similar to the religious delusions that caused some societies to crash and burn in the past. Written records go back about uh, 4,000 years, and from 2000 BC to uh, the time of Jesus, it was normal for all of the countries in the world to periodically cancel the debts when they became too large to pay. So you have Sumer, Babylonia, Egypt, other regions, uh, all proclaiming these debt cancellations. And the effect was to make a clean slate so that society would begin all over again. This was easy to do in a society where most debts were owed to the state. It became much harder to do when enterprise and credit passed out of the hands of the state into private hands and into the hands of an oligarchy. And the last thing they wanted was to have a king that would actually cancel the debts and restore equality. Rome was the first country of the world not to cancel the debts. It went to war in Sparta, in Greece, to overthrow the governments and the kings that wanted to cancel the debts. The wars of the first century BC ended up stripping these countries of everything they had. Not only did it strip the temples of gold, it stripped the public buildings, it stripped the economies of their reproductive capacity, it stripped them of their waterworks, it made a desert out of the land. And it said, a debt is a debt. 
collapse seems to have been closely linked to ecological devastation, which led to all sorts of social and economic and military problems. In the early stages of the Roman Republic, you had a fairly egalitarian landowning system. The peasants had access to public land. But as the Roman state became more powerful and the lords and the, uh, the generals began to appropriate public land for their own private estates, more and more peasants became landless. At the same time, erosion was a serious problem, so bad that the, some of the Roman ports silted up with all the topsoil that got washed down from the fields into the river. And archaeologists have been able to establish how badly degraded much of Italy was uh, by the fall of the Roman Empire and how it took a thousand years of much reduced population during the Middle Ages for fertility in, in Italy to rebuild. What was absolutely new uh, in the Roman Empire was irreversible concentration of wealth at the top of the economic pyramid. And that's what progress has meant ever since. Progress has me meant you will never get back what we take from you. Uh, that's what brought on the Dark Age, and it's what's threatened to bring in the Dark Age again if society doesn't realize that if it lets the uh, wealth concentrate in the hand of a financial class, this class is not going to be any more intelligent and long-term in disposing of the wealth than uh, its predecessors were in Rome or in uh, other countries. Well, the, the term uh, oligarchy obviously sounds a little, a little esoteric. It just means a small group of people have got a lot of political power based on their economic power. We like to think of the United States as being much more democratic, much more spread out in terms of who has the power. And, and oligarchy is something that's usually associated with relatively poor countries, but that view has to be updated because we've got an essential part of, of that problem, that structure in the United States today. People who got all this economic power were in the financial sector. It was Wall Street, if, if I can you know, use that, that, that shorthand expression. Wall Street became really powerful. They used that power to buy influence in, in Washington, get uh, more deregulation, so to get more of the playing field uh, shaped in the way they wanted, which was no government intervention, no restrictions on what they were going to do. That enabled them to make a lot more money, which brought them more political power. And this went on for a considerable period of time until, of course, there was an enormous crash. But basically, you come to us today on your bicycles after buying Girl Scout cookies and helping out Mother Teresa, telling us, we're sorry, we didn't mean it, we won't do it again, trust us. Well, I have some people in my constituency that actually robbed some of your banks. And they say the same thing. They're sorry, they didn't mean it, they won't do it again, just let them out. Do you understand that this is a little difficult for most of my constituents to take? That you learned your lesson? The bankers can't stop themselves. It's in their DNA, in the DNA of their organizations, to take massive risks, to pay themselves ridiculous salaries, and, and to collapse. And the, the more that reasonable, responsible people of the center, and the left and the right, see this, the closer we'll get to finally constraining the power of, of these uh, out-of-control financial oligarchs.
It's not a mystery. It's not a surprise that we know we have crises every five or ten years. You know, my daughter called me from school one day and said, Dad, what's a financial crisis? And without trying to be funny, I said, it's the type of thing that happens every five to seven years. And she said, why is everyone so surprised? So we, aren't surpri we shouldn't be surprised. I read scrawled on a wall somewhere that every time re history repeats itself, the price goes up. If you look at the increasing complexity of civilization, what you can see towards the end of the classic Maya period is the enormous amount of effort being put in to build uh, palaces and temple precincts that are controlled entirely by the nobility and from which one imagines the, the peasantry was excluded just as the, the ordinary folk are excluded from uh, gated communities in many countries today. And one imagines also that therefore the people at the bottom were becoming more and more disenchanted with the rulers as they felt that the social contract that had once existed, that the rulers were kind of uh, the mediators between the gods and themselves and would help them get good weather and good crops and all of that, uh, as they saw that beginning to break down and, and the rulers in effect losing touch with the people whom they claimed to represent. Uh, it is a pattern I think we can see a lot in the modern world now. Every society in history for the last 4,000 years has uh, found that the debts grow more rapidly than people can pay. And the problem is a small oligarchy of 10% of the population at the top to whom all of these net debts are owed to. You want to annul the debts to the top 10%. That's what they're not going to do. The oligarchy is running things. They would rather annul the bottom 90% right to live than to annul the money that's due to them. They would rather strip the planet and shrink the population uh, and be paid rather than give up their claims. That's the political fight of the 21st century. Well, my job on Wall Street was to be balance of payments economist for the Chase Manhattan Bank in the 1960s. My first job there was to calculate how much debt could uh, third world countries pay. And the answer was, well, how much do they earn? And whatever they earn, that's what they can afford to pay in interest. And our objective was to take the entire earnings of a third world country and say, ideally, that would be all paid as interest to us. Look, don't give me a hard luck story. I hear them every day, and quite frankly, they bore me. The facts are simple. In 1973, this bank gave you a loan, and you still haven't paid it back. Admittedly, you paid back the initial sum, but not the interest which to date amounts to nine times the amount originally borrowed. Nine times. So you better get your act together. Times are tough, and we're all having to clamp down. And don't look at me like that. This is a bank, not a charity. The number one cost for foreign uh, lending uh, through some of the multilateral institutions such as uh, IMF and World Bank is uh, the death toll. 
on the continent. We can look at the support of dictators that took place uh, 30 years ago, uh, from 1960 till uh, 1997, of a brutal dictator. <laughs> He was given humongous loans. Everyone knew he wasn't using that for the population. Uh, he was propped up as uh, one of the biggest leaders in, in the whole African continent. While your country is young, only 10 years of age, that it has had a period of progress in that period, which has been an example for nations throughout the world. You have moved forward economically. You have established unity in your country. And you have a vitality which impresses every visitor when he comes to Congo. What is interesting is all the money plundered from all the international debt is found in Western banks. So as he was removed from power, the money never returned to the Congolese. The population didn't have access to medical uh, services, didn't have access to adequate education, living wage, and uh, it continued till today. Now the Congo has a $14 billion debt. It's been structured in a way where the people uh, do not benefit, and the human cost is uh, so high. You know, in the Congo, we have six million uh, deaths since 1996. Rich countries lend a so-called developing country a big whack of money. Debt is incurred on behalf of people who have nothing to do with it, don't know anything about it. Then they're expected to pay, pay the price by, by scraping off their livelihood, turning it into money and giving it to somebody else. How could uh, the money given to the Congo benefit to the people? Use some of the funds to make sure that there are strong institutions within the country that will protect against uh, human rights violation and so many other issues that we face. But these funds are not used for that because whenever it's given, they tell you specifically what project you have to use it for. And mainly, it's usually mining projects uh, to get access to resources. Interesses o quê? Interesses 
you can relate the destruction of the rainforest in Brazil directly to the uh, Wall Street and London uh, financial sector. Uh, it, the story begins in 1982 when countries couldn't pay their debt anymore. And the result is that the Latin American countries generally stopped paying because they said, we're already paying all of the balance of payments surplus we have uh, to the banks. We don't have any money to import to sustain living standards. We don't have money to import to build new factories and to pay the debt. So the International Monetary Fund at that point said, don't go bankrupt. You have an option. You can begin to sell off the public domain. You have plenty of assets to sell to pay us. You can sell off your water rights, your forests, your subsoil mineral resources. You can sell us your oil rights. And so uh, Brazil, Argentina, and other countries began to sell off uh, their resources to private investors. And the private investors bought these resources on credit. Até então, as pessoas acreditavam que os recursos naturais eram praticamente infinitos e de que só, só se deveria é, valorizar aquilo que tinha uma transformação feita pelo homem. Agora nós estamos descobrindo que existem serviços que são prestados à humanidade e à sustentação da vida na Terra, que são feitos pela natureza, e que os povos, eles, pela posição que ocupam geograficamente, são detentores de parte desses serviços prestados pela natureza. Quando eu me deparei com uma situação em que havia um risco de destruição daquele modo de vida e daquela de entender pelo que eu deveria lutar, a favor do que eu deveria lutar e contra aqueles que achavam que a floresta era sinônimo de atraso, é, de ser algo contra o progresso. O IBAMA é a agência de meio ambiente do governo federal e ela foi criada para tratar de todo o problema ambiental do país. Quando eu entrei no IBAMA, eu vi que eu acho, a área que eu mais gostaria e que eu poderia defender os meus ideais e, e estar em contato com a natureza seria na fiscalização. Onde eu puder estar, o que eu puder parar, eu vou fazer. Mas, infelizmente, o que eu posso fazer é ínfimo comparado ao, ao que acontece. Vanderlei dele é com W ou com V? Sei lá, Vanderlei. Então, esse 144 é só esse pedacinho aqui, né? Esse vermelhinho que está aqui nesse cantinho. de operação que nós temos é nas madeireiras. Essa, esse tipo de operação consiste em ir às madeireiras e observar se a madeira que eles têm lá é de origem legal. Então, peço que você também, Anara, olhe que Pessoal, todos eles têm famílias, todos são trabalhadores, não tem nenhum bandido aqui, como o mundo lá fora fala de nós, né? Então, façam o trabalho de vocês, tenham 
porque o medo nosso é só de uma, um exemplo que aconteceu aqui, lacrar a empresa, aí você para, para aí é complicado. Eu emprego hoje um, vários funcionários e acredito que da forma que está nós vamos parar de trabalhar, vamos dispensar todo mundo e vamos, vamos achar outro meio de vida para poder sobreviver. Amanhã a gente vai trabalhar e se não, nós dispensamos novamente. Em vários casos a população se se volta contra o Ibama e se, e, e se torna violenta porque elas dependem economicamente da, da, da First Station. E aí ocorrem esses distúrbios, essas, essas guerras civis que nessas cidades amazônicas. Tudo tem uma herança ali. É a mãe de leite, Amazônia. Amazônia é a mãe de leite. Lá no país da senhora existe Amazônia, existe a floresta? Aqui é a bacia Amazônia. O pulmão dos do Estados Unidos, minha turma fala. Que isso daqui eles falam que é o pulmão dos Estados Unidos, que é um lugar que, que se gera oxigênio para lá. Se acabar isso daqui, todo mundo lá morre sem oxigênio. Aí por causa disso o povo brasileiro vai penar. Vai, é, vai penar, porque nós vamos comer o quê? Vamos, vamos comer o quê? Um pouco... Nós vamos penar, tia. Quem, quem, você põe aqui o nosso governador daqui que derrubou os milhões de alqueiro lá e aí é. quem paga o pato é nós que derrubamos é, um alqueiro ou dois que nós precisamos, precisamos derrubar um alqueiro para nós plantar o nosso arroz, nosso feijão, nosso milho, né, plantar o nosso pé de café, para poder nós criar a nossa família. Quem de destrói a Amazônia são os grandes fazendeiros, são grupos internacionais, são grandes fazendeiros, onde tem senadores, deputados, coronéis. Esses são os destruidores da, da, da floresta amazônica. Esses sim. Muito, é super frustrante, na maioria das vezes, porque nós sabemos que as pessoas que nós estamos pegando não são os grandes responsáveis pelo desmatamento. A maior parte dos políticos brasileiros, eles têm agronegócio, eles têm, são plantadores de soja, são pecuaristas. Então, há conflitos de interesse. They're cutting down the rainforest, they're emptying out the economy, they're turning it into a hole in the ground to repay the bankers. That's the financial business plan, that's how it ends up. Because the bankers can always take their money and begin digging holes in another country and emptying out that country. That's the global financial system. <laughs>
Se a gente não cuidar da Amazônia com devido apego a ela, a gente vai acabar virando o deserto da Amazônia. Porque quando a gente desmata uma árvore, ela deixa de, de água, né? Aí a gente vai ter um monte de coisa e no final vai resultar em deserto. Economists say if you clear cut the forest, take the money and put it in the bank, you can make six or seven percent. If you clear cut the forest, put it into Malaysia or Papua New Guinea, you can make 30 or 40 percent. So who cares whether you keep the forest? Cut it down, put the money somewhere else. When those forests are gone, put it in fish. When the fish are gone, put it in computers. Money doesn't stand for anything, and money now grows faster than the real world. Conventional economics is a form of brain damage. Economics is so fundamentally disconnected from the real world, it is destructive. If you take a, an introductory course in economics, the professor in the first lecture will show a slide of the economy. And it looks very impressive, you know, raw materials, extraction, process, manufacture, wholesale, retail, with arrows going back and forth. And they try to impress you because they think, they know damn well, economics is not a science but they're trying to fool us into thinking that it's a real science. It's not. Economics is a set of values that they then try to use mathematical equations and all that stuff and pretend that it's a science. But if you ask the economist, in that equation, where do you put the ozone layer? Where do you put the deep underground aquifers of fossil water? Where do you put topsoil or biodiversity? Their answer is, oh, those are externalities. Well, then you might as well be on Mars. That economy's not based in anything like the real world. It's life, the web of life that filters water in the hydrologic cycle. It's microorganisms in the soil that create the soil that we can grow our food in. Nature performs all kinds of services. Insects fertilize all of the flowering plants. These services are vital to the health of the planet. Economists call these externalities. That's nuts. Unlimited economic progress in a world of finite natural resources doesn't make sense. It's a pattern that is bound to collapse, and we keep seeing it collapsing. Uh, but then we build it up because there are these strong vested interests. We must have business as usual. And, you know, you get the arms manufacturers, you get the petroleum industry, you get the pharmaceutical industry, and all of this feeding into... Um, helping to create cor corrupt governments who are putting the future of their own people at risk. You can imagine lilies growing in a pond. Lilies grow very rapidly. They double uh, every day. They're going to cover the whole surface and there won't be any way of the fish getting oxygen and all the life is going to die in the pond. That's how rapidly things can grow. One day, you're half full of lilies. The next day, you're dead. You could say that today, we're in the point at which the lily pond is half full. 
the uh, life is being snuffed out of national economies uh, and the debt goes on doubling. How long can it do it? It has one day to go. All the civilizations of the past, and I think our own, only seem to be doing well when they're expanding, when the population is growing, when the industrial output is growing, and when the cities are spreading outwards. Eventually, you reach the point at which the population has overrun everything. The cities have expanded over the farmland. The people at the bottom begin to starve, and the people at the top lose their legitimacy. And so you get, uh, you get hunger, you get revolution. kind of scary thing about the moment we're in is that for the first time there's kind of only one system so if the whole thing goes down you won't have what you've had in previous eras of epic collapse which is that even though one civilization goes down and may take a while to recover there are other robust civilizations that are kind of the guardians um, of progress In that sense, some of the things that have been reassuring in the past about progress don't necessarily apply to the current situation. Because once you, once you get to the global level, you've only got one experiment working. That's just the inevitable culmination of its growth ever since the Stone Age. And there were way stations along the way, like the Roman Empire. And now here we are, and uh, more and more people are in the same boat. And... They face problems and either they will solve them together or suffer together and, you know, possibly on a catastrophic scale. We are entering an increasingly dangerous period of our history. Our genetic code still carries the selfish and aggressive instincts that were of survival advantage in the past. But I'm an optimist. If we are the only intelligent beings in the galaxy, we should make sure we survive and continue. We can avoid disaster for the next two centuries. Our species should be safe. We have made remarkable progress in the last hundred years.
chance of long-term survival is not to remain inward-looking on planet Earth, but to spread out into space. I was at a conference uh, a few years back uh, with George Lucas, and uh, he came up and said, you know, you, you know, there's, there's only two hopes uh, for humanity. Uh, either we find another planet to colonize after we've destroyed this one, uh, or perhaps your technology, uh, meaning what we're doing with the genetic code, uh, might be able to allow us to transform ourselves uh, or other aspects of the planet where we could continue to live here. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. We are announcing today for the first time our species can read the chemical letters of its genetic code. For the last several years, my team has been actually sailing around the world, collecting all the species in the ocean, uh, the micro-species on filters, and we isolate all the DNA all at once from all of them. I have a novel way of looking at these genes. I view them as the design components of the future. It's a mind-boggling concept, even though we're doing it every day, uh, that we can simply uh, start with four bottles of chemicals, write the genetic code, and change the genetic code of species, basically developing new species. And we can try and find ways to make uh, fuels that other people haven't even imagined. We can do this with novel sources of food. Uh, we're limited by only by our imagination and whatever biological reality is. When we consider trying to replace oil, we use billions of gallons of oil a year. It's, uh, I can't even, I think I have a pretty good imagination and vision what a billion gallons of oil is. Uh, and making a billion gallons of oil uh, from invisible microbes uh, is a certain leap of faith. But it, in fact, that's, that's how we proceed in science. Instead of writing software for computers, we can now write software for life. By changing and taking over evolution, changing the time course of evolution, and going into deliberate design of species for our own survival, least gives us some points of optimism uh, that we have a chance to control our destiny. Uh, we're here today to announce uh, the first uh, synthetic cell. This is the first self-replicating species that we've had on the planet whose parent is a computer. One of the challenges that, that it faces the human species is we are more and more in a position of acting like gods. This has been true for a while because we've had the ability to change the climate, for example. This is going to be even more true with genetic technologies. We're going to be able to manipulate other species and eventually ourselves. 
we're going to be in a position of controlling our own fate in a way that no creature has ever in you know a billion years on the planet had an opportunity to do. I once wrote a poem in which a mad bishop said, and man became God, became greater than God in the godhood of man. I do not see anyone living in this materialistic society as being anything like God. I don't know what God is, but uh, in my wildest dreams, I would never conceive of God or a God as being like uh, a modern human being in a materialistic society. We're, we're anything but godlike. I, I think the challenges are so overwhelming to all of us uh, that we're all trying to just use whatever new tools we can uh, to try and change the future. Synthetic biology is a progress trap par excellence. Biologists have pointed out that these engineering approaches is all very well and the engineers can try to treat life as though it was some sort of computer or engineering substrate, um, but ultimately the microbes are gonna end up laughing at them, that, uh, that life doesn't work like that. problems that we're seeing now, whether we're talking about hunger and massive inequity, whether we're talking about climate change or the loss of biodiversity, have been driven over the last 200 years by a system of overproduction of stuff and overconsumption of stuff. And, uh, and then that's been inflated and inflated and inflated to the point where it really is not in any way reasonable. Um, the, the companies and, and those within governments who have supported that, that approach um, are now saying that they will provide new technologies to continue that consumption of stuff, that level of production. Um, it's just not realistic. ExxonMobil and Synthetic Genomics have built a new facility to identify the most productive strains of algae. Algae are amazing little critters. They secrete oil, which we could turn into biofuels. They also absorb CO2. We're hoping to supplement the fuels that we use in our vehicles to someday help meet the world's energy demands. What is harder? Mapping the entire genome set that makes up a human being or making algae produce energy? Well, making algae produce energy is not hard, but doing it on the scale required to have a major economic and environmental impact is going to be a huge challenge. But uh, we have a good partner with that with ExxonMobil to try and get it to the scale that it needs to be of billions of gallons a year. A lot of engineering is required for facilities the size of San Francisco. Goodness. Uh, I think they're serious and we're serious. What we're seeing alongside the development of synthetic biology is a massive corporate grab on plant life. Um, literally speaking, that means a grab on land uh, and a grab on seas as well, where people are being moved off of land to make way for the growing of plant life that can be transformed into plastics, chemicals, fuels and so forth. What drives synthetic biology is not an attempt to, to save the planet or, or help humanity, but an attempt to, to increase the bottom line for certain very large corporations. If we're going to feed the uh, upcoming 9 billion people, uh, we can't afford uh, to use our prime uh, cropland uh, for the trying to produce the billions of gallons uh, of fuel uh, that we use. What we're doing with writing the genetic code, uh, changing these species, uh, allows us to use desert land.
uh, for uh, we just need sunlight and uh, CO2 uh, for using these new uh, engineered algae, uh, for example. Synthetic biology, in a way, you know, it's frightening, but I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this in many ways. That It would be nice to get a more water-efficient plant, but still, it would still need water. Craig Venter cannot create a plant which needs no water and no nitrogen, or which totally fixes all its nitrogen by sucking it from the air. You know, it's just, it cannot go that far. This doesn't fundamentally change the game. What fundamentally changes the game, and what people don't want to hear, and I'm coming across all the time, and people say, you know, don't talk to us like that, because just this is a no starter. But for me, this is the only starter. We have to use less. The poor people need more. There is no doubt about it. There is no discussion there. Right? If you are average village or somewhere in Rajasthan or Punjab or, or Nigeria, you need more, period. There's a basic human decency compels you to say these people need more, more clean water, more basic food, more education for their children. The discussion closed right, before it begins. Right? But as far as us is concerned, we certainly could and should do with much, much, much less. People have been conditioned that things have to always get go better. And immediately as you say, limit something, people think this is not getting better. But it would be. It's even a non-starter saying people, you should eat less. You should eat less meat, right? That's even, that's a non-starter, right? You should use less electricity, right? You should build smaller cars. The other day I saw the vice president of, of GM talking about the new GM, right? And one of these journalists asked him rightly, you know, but your cars are still so heavy. And he says, yes, we are working on it. What is there to work on it, right? There are so many things which we could do, you know, not to surrender our standard of living, not to kind of live in a gutter, really, right? You know, but we don't need one and a half ton car to go from red light to red light in a city, really, right? People are not willing to go back on these things. Most of them simply are not because they've been totally hijacked by this material culture. Let's not underestimate the, you know, the, 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 the persuasion the power of this material culture is immense. It's just immense. When I've seen so many people being so genuinely unhappy that they cannot afford a 50,000 square foot, oh, sorry, 50,000 dollar bathroom remodeling, right? I mean, there's something wrong with that value set, right? You know, because bathroom is a place where you should spend like whatever, 10 minutes to take your shower, brush your teeth, right? so it doesn't have to be worse. But uh, you know how much how much money people are, so, again, on my mind, because we are thinking about redoing our bathroom, right? So it's on my mind. So it's very interesting. So for me, it's a chore because it has to be done, really. But for many people, it's kind of a life-affirming thing, you know. People are renting storage spaces, right, which they will never access in the next 20 years to store the junk which they cannot store in their 5,000 square foot homes, really, right? So do we need that, really? So it's, it's just amazing. Really. So uh, it's, 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 this is very difficult to put the genie in the bottle. So everything is defined in this material thing. I, mean, I could make it a lot more coherent, but you see, this is difficult because when you make it a lot more coherent, you make it prescriptive. And prescriptions never work, really, because I don't have the solution. I can't sit here and say, you know, we should follow this and by 2030 everything click and we all live happily ever after, right? You know, so I'm making it deliberately uncoherent. I could be, you know, I could be very doctrinaire. I could, but you see, I live for 26 years in a communist society. I'm inoculated against any doctrinaire grand solution saying, you know, this is the pattern, this is the master, this is the paradigm which you have to follow, you know. I'm just totally set against it. So I'm making things deliberately kind of, you know, messy, inchoate, uncoordinated because that's how life is. We don't know what pattern will emerge. As long as we are living amidst of this sea of affluence and opportunities and material uh, riches, uh, it's just very difficult to make this individual voluntary resolute step and saying enough, back, limit. 
very difficult. acho que chegamos à era dos limites. Ainda que sejamos livres, nós somos livres para viver de acordo com a natureza que fomos criados. E não é possível defender modelos que não possam ser universalizados, porque senão nós teríamos que partir do princípio de que alguns têm direitos e outros não têm direitos. Logo, não é um problema de técnica, é um problema de ética. I was walking around pointing my finger at everybody and, you, you know, you people and, you know, blaming the culture for its consumption. And finally, one day I came home and um, I had the air conditioners were on, even though there was no one home. And I was like, wait, you know, I'm going around blaming everybody else. But the fact of the matter is that my lifestyle requires a huge amount of resource, too. So how can I blame other people? And... Um, And I realized that before I go around trying to change other people, maybe I should look at myself and change myself and keep my side of the street clean. So I came up with this idea that I would live as environmentally as possible for a year and see how that affected us. So we did this no impact experiment. We did it. We live in New York. We live in the middle of New York City, which made it unusual because most people can, you know, can think of environmental living as some sort of a back to the land thing. Um, and if, but of course. Back to the land is not the right idea when it comes to saving our habitat. If all of us in New York were to go back to the land, we would very much destroy the land. We're not biologically consumptive. This has not got to do with human nature. Human nature is to do what everybody else does. That's human nature, that, that we want to, and it's wonderful. It's like, I want to be with you. I want to be the same as you. I want to love you, and I want you to love me. That's not bad. So, so that's at the, so it, but that's also part of the problem. I, I want to be the same as you and you consume, so I'm not going to be the first not to consume. But it also tells us that if we can move from non-consumption to consumption, we can also move from consumption back to non-consumption. We need to begin by saying we're at the end of a failed experiment and it's time to say goodbye to it. It's an economic experiment, it's a technological experiment. It's been going on for a couple of hundred years and uh, it's not worked. It's brought us to this, this, this point of crisis. Then we can start to sanely and intelligently say, how can we live within the real limits that our planet gives us and create a safe operating space for humanity? Admittedly, we've used our brain in ways that are detrimental to the environment and society, but brains are beginning to get together around the planet to find um, solutions to some of the harm that we've inflicted. And you know, we humans are a problem-solving species. We always do pretty well when our back's to the wall. It's easy now to see kind of a a giant social brain or planetary brain because it's in the, it's in the physical form of the internet. It, it looks so much like a nervous system, you almost can't miss the analogy. 
You might say that there have always been a lot of little social brains around the planet getting bigger, starting to form little inter interconnections among themselves. Now more than ever, you could say there's a unified uh, social brain. If the overall arc of history is toward an expanded moral horizon, more and more people acknowledging the humanity of more and more different kinds of people, there's always the risk of backsliding, and it can be catastrophic. From a point of view of strict self-interest, it is imperative that we make further moral progress, that we get more and more people uh, to acknowledge the humanity of one another, or it will be bad for pretty much all of them. If we don't uh, develop what you might call the moral perspective of God, um, then we'll screw up the engineering part of playing God um, because the, the actual engineering solutions depend on seeing things from the point of view of other people, ensuring that their lives don't get too bad because if they do, it'll come back to haunt us. Um, so, you know, Kind of half of being God has just been handed to us, and then the question is whether whether uh, we'll master the other half of being God, the moral half. The bad news is that the enlightenment is, is sometimes hard to come by uh, because of human nature in some cases. Because you know we've we've got these kind of animal minds designed for a very different environment, facing novel problems. So the enlightenment part is going to require some real education and reflection and self-discipline that may not come naturally. I think what we're up against here is human nature. We have to reform ourselves, remake ourselves in a way that cuts against the grain of our inner animal nature and transcend that ice age hunter that all of us are if you, if you strip off the thin layer of civilization. We've unleashed it, but we've never really controlled it. But now it's more likely that we're going to come to grief because of environmental problems. If we do, then that is really nature saying the experiment of civilization is a failed evolutionary experiment, that making apes smarter is a, is a dead end. Uh, so it's up to us to prove nature wrong, in a sense, to show that we can uh, take control of our own destinies and behave in a wise way that will ensure the continuation of the experiment of civilization. <laughs>